The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Wednesday morning and welcome to Money Movers. I'm Sarah Eisen with Frank Holland. Today live from Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Ahead, Apollo's torsion slock on the timeline for the first Fed rate cut. Plus, can the rally continue with 72% of the stocks in the S&P 500 underperforming the index this year? Then the home builders ETF XHB on pace for its best year ever. Names like Builders for Source, Pulte and Toll Brothers more than doubling. What's all this mean for housing affordability next year, and how can investors play the market? We will discuss. And finally, the CEO of health company Roe on the surge in weight loss drugs this year and M&A in the sector. Yeah, but first, a quick look at the markets right now. We're seeing the Dow just fractionally higher right now. The S&P negative, basically flat right now, still very close to a new record high. The Nasdaq composite, same story, negative, basically flat. Important to note, the Nasdaq 100 on pace for its best year since 1999. There's a Prince joke in there somewhere. I just don't have it, Sarah. I yeah, where's your it. Prince song reference? Uh, Ten-year note uh, right now, the yield about 30 basis points lower since that dovish pause by the Fed. I think we've been continuing to say that. But overall, kind of a, a meh day on the markets right now. Well, Tesla's higher, and that's helping the Nasdaq. But Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Adobe, they're all weighing. And that's turned sort of tech in the S&P 500 a little bit lower, despite some strength in groups like consumer, staples, right. and discretionary. Our next guest says not to expect a rate cut anytime soon, believing the Fed will keep rates higher for longer than the market is currently pricing. Joining us now at Post 9 with his outlook, Apollo Chief Economist Torsten Slack. So you are the bearer of bad news. This market is all bulled up on rate cuts starting maybe as early as March. Well, remember that the Fed pivot pushed rates down. It, of course, boosted the stock market and narrowed credit spreads. So now we will see more lift to the housing market. And housing makes up 40% of the CPI. So if you now get a boom in the housing market, and you are already seeing early this week, Case-Shiller was up 5% in November, the risk is that inflation may actually begin to stage a rebound, and that will complicate the path for the Fed of getting inflation back to 2%. But my favorite chart today is the, the PCE deflator core, which we know the Fed looks at, six-month annualized, under 2%. See, but how fun is it that people pick and cherry-pick the three months, six months at the right time? Ask the same people, well, what did you do six months ago when the six and three months was a lot higher? So do what the Fed is doing. They look at the 12 months change, and the Fed focuses on that core CPI is still at 4%. So if you now have a rebound in 40% of the CPI basket coming from housing rebounding, the risk is that the pendulum for the Fed is going to swing from dovish back to a more hawkish direction. Yeah, so a key part of your thesis is shelter inflation being sticky. I think we've been talking about that a lot. But aren't rent prices actually going down? And on top of that, energy, that's about, I think, 7% of PCE. I mean, gas prices are actually lower. More importantly, diesel prices down 14%. Isn't that actually deflationary? Well, that's true. Energy prices have certainly been pulling inflation down. But when you look at rents in particular in smaller cities, have actually started to reaccelerate. And even rents in larger cities, rent inflation is still more elevated than where we were before the pandemic. So 
the bottom line in this discussion is just that the risks are still that the Fed did with their Fed pivot start to reignite the risk of an upward trend in inflation over the coming months, in particular driven by 40% of the index, which is housing. And you think that will keep them on hold until when? Well, I think that it will at least keep the Fed pendulum swinging back towards the more hawkish direction. So I think that they will only start hiking by the middle of next year. I think they're right that they will only cut rates three times next year. So that's why I think the market is getting ahead of itself here with six rates cuts as we speak. Well, you know, right now we're obviously enjoying a Santa Claus rally, a little bit of a pause on it today. But are you saying that the next PCE report's a big market mover? I believe it's about two days before the next Fed meeting. Absolutely. So I do think that over the next several months, if we look at this uptrend, the leading indicator properties of K. Schiller, the home price index, are very clear for the shelter components of inflation. And when something makes up 40% of the basket and that starts to recover, it will begin to be more of an issue that may be this rally that we've had at the moment has been a bit premature. In particular, as Sarah also just mentioned, the concentration in the rally has been really in a handful of stocks. The rest of the market has essentially been moving basically sideways. So the conclusion is still the broader economy still is battling with inflation, potentially being a risk as I, we enter 2024. I know shelter is a big deal in, in the inflation component side of things, but you know, we're at a point now where we're starting to see goods deflate and we're starting to see services disinflate at a meaningful level. And I do wonder if the Fed still can just have enough progress where it can start cutting to more normalized levels so that it can preserve the economy. True. Because if, the, if what you're saying is true, then they then they risk the hard landing. Absolutely. That's why probably they did do the Fed pivot because they were worried about that maybe things are moving in the right direction. But all I'm pointing out is that the risks are that there is a circle coming back to the economy from the Fed pivot, which will provide the endogenous or the boost to the economy as a result of much easier financial conditions. We have seen easier financial conditions. So when do you, so, so you think the wake-up call is going to be an inflation report that does this or Fed speak? I think that it's either the inflation report or it could alternatively also be a much weaker labor market. I mean, there's a lot of things that still can go wrong in this. It could also be that the labor market starts to reaccelerate as a result of the Fed pivot. So all this is pointing out is that, yes, there is what looks like a soft landing in inflation going on, but that's at risk now of reaccelerating. And we also have a risk in the labor market. We could either see the labor market have a harder landing. We could also see if the Fed pivot really kicks in that the labor market is going to rebound. So there's still a lot more scenarios open than this immaculate disinflation scenario that the market is pricing at the moment. I normally know you to be kind of more glass half full, Torsten. You're looking at all the negative stuff that might happen. One other thing I know you're looking at is I believe 72% of stocks in the S&P 500 underperform the index this year. But it seems like more and more people are looking for a rebound next year as investing kind of just broadens out. Do you see that happening again next year as well? Well, it is remarkable that this year is the story essentially of AI lifting everything. So you have a handful of stocks, namely the Magnificent 7. They are up 75% this year. They have a PE ratio of more than 50. And now you have the rest of the index. 72% have underperformed the index. If I take a fresh $100 and I want to put it to work, do want to put it to work into an index that's so concentrated on a very simple story, which really could still be a pie in the sky. We just don't really know. And we just don't really, at least yet, have any clear idea whether we can justify the incredible valuations you're seeing of that seven stocks that are getting so much attention. While we're on the risk side of things, since you're feeling a little more downbeat than I think consensus <laughs> for next year, You've, you've been looking at commercial real estate exposure, and I do wonder if we haven't really seen that domino fall yet. What you're expecting, now that rates have come down a little bit, does that make it more palatable, what's well, going to happen there? Well, what's incredible about that discussion is that we are discussing 
some issues in the banking sector with the commercial real estate in a strong economy. Imagine what would happen if you actually have a weak economy. Normally, when you have a weak economy, you have a banking crisis. But this time around, if we begin to have a more weaker economy, if the economy does slow down, as you would expect as a result of Fed hikes, then it would open up a lot of discussions about credit risk and credit losses, including in commercial real estate. So that's why we are not out of the woods when it comes to inflation, and we are certainly not out of the woods when but it comes to you, the risk associated with commercial real estate. Is that a systemic risk? Is it an economic risk? Well, most of the risk from commercial real estate are on small bank balance sheets. So because of that, that is helping a bit on making it less systemic. But combining it with Basel III, combining it with financials underperforming in the S&P quite substantially this year, there's still a lot of questions marks about the banking sector and what it will look like, in particular if we do get that slowdown that the Fed has tried to engineer for the better part of this year. Yeah, one question has been answered. We're not seeing that wave of M&A a lot of people predicted for or forecasted for the banking sector. By the way, Torsten, Goldman says five quarter point cuts next year. Contrarian calls. Second day of contrarian calls. You came in. You, didn't, you did not come in to bring Christmas cheer this year. No, because I think that we're simply not done fighting inflation. And if we're not done fighting inflation, it means that all the negative consequences of fighting inflation, namely higher rates, higher cost of capital, will continue to linger as we enter 2024. Even, even if they signal they're done fighting inflation. Well, I, but I think that's <laughs> why I did. think that they will have to change that signal soon. All right, Torsten. Thank you. Thank You've been you. warning the risk. I mean, the financial conditions have loosened. That you cannot deny. Yes. Rates are down. Stocks are up. Dollars weaker might have an impact. Which is a huge boost yeah. to the economy. Right. All right, Torsten, thank you. Thank Torsten, you. Torsten, thank from you. Apollo. Good to see you. All right, we were just talking about inflation from shelter and the first Fed rate cut. How could falling <laughs> mortgage rates impact home affordability in 2024? Our Diana Olick is looking at that this morning. Diana, what are you saying? Well, Frank, the hope is that lower mortgage rates will kickstart the market in the new year, but there are still some big headwinds for housing that don't seem to be going away just yet. That's supply and prices. It's all about affordability. So 2023 may have actually been the least affordable year for housing in history. Record high and rising home prices combined with rising mortgage rates, which don't usually go together, made that happen. Through October, at least, the typical 2023 homebuyer needed to earn an annual income of at least $110,000 if they wanted to spend no more than 30% of their earnings on monthly housing payments for the median-priced home. That's according to Redfin. Now, the median household income is about $75,000, so do the math there. Now, mortgage rates started this year at about 6.5%, rose steadily, jumping over 8% in October. They have since fallen back sharply and will start next year about where they did this year. So let's compare a 6% mortgage rate to an 8% rate. If you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fixed mortgage, at 6%, your monthly payment is $1,918. That's without insurance or property taxes. At 8%, that jumps to $2,348. So a difference of $430 a month or $5,160 a year, $5,160. Lower rates help on the monthly payment, but home prices continue to rise and the gains are getting bigger because the supply of homes for sale is so low. As of October, prices were up 4.8% year over year. That's according to S&P Schiller. It's the largest annual gain of this year. Now, sellers were a little bit more active this fall, but the supply of homes for sale is still about 38% below pre-pandemic levels. Back to you guys. All right, our Diana Olick. Diana, thank you very much. For much more on home affordability in 2024, let's bring in Zillow Chief Economist Skylar Olson. Skylar, happy holidays. Great to see you. Nice to see you, too. All right, so Diana was kind of painting the picture just, just now. Yeah. 
What's your outlook for 2024? Are homes going to get more affordable? We're expecting rates to come down, but does that equal affordability for buyers? Yeah, I mean, I actually think 2024 will offer a bit of relief for buyers, not just, as you mentioned, the mortgage rate coming down, but as Diana pointed out, it makes a big big difference in that monthly affordability. Uh, We also have seen home values begin uh, to slow down again. Um, Zillow's uh, home value index is reported with less lag than Case-Shiller. So our uh, Zillow home value index did also kind of get a bit hotter earlier when the supply uh, pulled back. But over the last uh, few months has actually started slowing down again. Now we've seen a few more new listings come onto the market, at least relative to a normal time, it's still uh, very low, low levels of supply. But a little bit more supply does help uh, ease prices. And if wages uh, continue to grow, that means affordability should improve next year. All right. So you mentioned a little bit more supply helps ease prices. Looking at your data, about 80 percent of mortgage holders have a rate under 5 percent. So even if rates go down a bit more, it's still going to be hard to leave those low mortgages. But I do want to ask you, generally, when rates go down, prices go up. So are people really going to capture this affordability or should they be looking to buy now and possibly refinance later? Yeah, whenever I answer a question about like, do I wait, do I buy now? You know, at a situation like this, the economic decision of buying a home comes with larger upfront costs and without a mortgage rate near 3%, it takes a while to break even from that upfront relative to say renting and going in stocks. So when you ask me, is now a good time to buy? It really depends on that individual uh, and whether or not they find the inventory that they will want to stay in for several years to okay. make this financial decision pay off. But as, as far as that goes, you know, this will be a time when that buyer has more bargaining power than they certainly have had over the past three years and life probably didn't wait for them. So for that person, I'm looking forward. So just to put it in layman's terms, I was talking to the CEO of Brown Harris Stevens earlier, largest private mortgage broker uh, broker in the nation. She was saying, you know, marry the house, buy the rate is kind of a cliche. Yeah. But are, are you saying don't do that unless you want to marry the house forever and you don't ever want a divorce? I think a forever is a very long phrase. Like, let's take a situation like the Midwest or Milwaukee. It's not forever, right? In order to break even relative to renting, it could, you know, be a matter of, you know, five or so years, seven years. You know, for someone buying in a very expensive market like, say, L.A., this is why this metro has a large share of renters, right? It's a harder place to make that kind of decision pencil because we've had decades of home prices outpacing rents in an expensive market like that. But that said, that's a place where we're seeing some of the faster home value growth and may continue to have legs. So this, again, is a long run financial decision. It's hard for, I think, a lot of first time buyers to look at this because what they've observed is very lucky home buyers over the last several years who got sensationally low rates that offered extraordinary affordability relative to renting and honestly massive gains in wealth from home value appreciation. Home values are not dropping. You know, now we're actually expecting them to just grow kind of very slightly uh, into the future in terms of a long run uh, forecast, much more mild growth. Um, And it's just adjusting that expectation. So buying a home still has that payoff for that person who wants to commit. It's that classic buying a home decision. This is not a time for flipping. So home prices next year, Skylar, do what? 
We think home prices are flat next year. Uh, so we update our forecast, you know, of course, every month with mortgage rate expectations changing. That most recent forecast softened because we saw new listings come back. They're now only 14 percent below a normal November, say. Um, but that forecast got a little bit better when we saw mortgage rates come down again. Mm. So that forecast changes a lot depending on that macro scenario. So like we're talking about today, it still depends, of course, on what mortgage rates do. That in turn could depend on yeah. what the Fed does and that in turn, inflation. I, th I think I feel better talking to you because we just heard from Apollo's chief economist and he was saying. I know, I was listening to Torsten, I know. Torsten was saying, you know, housing is going to reinflate and the Fed's going to get worried about it because these mortgage rates are dropping and financial conditions are easing and we're going to see prices go back up and activity come back strong and that's going to hurt their effort to fight inflation. Is he wrong? Yeah, we we do watch supply and demand kind of move together. That's one of the reasons why we're certainly not forecasting prices to fall, right, is because that buyer is certainly there. And if mortgage rates come a little bit further down below six, it only needs to come down to 6.4 to make that calculus between renting and, excuse me, renting a similar quality home and buying it kind of at a monthly affordability level balance out. So if mortgage rates keep coming down, as Torsten is worried about, that could return pressure to housing. And then that would change uh, back to being more pessimistic. Skylar, I like the positivity. Sounds like you're forecasting a Goldilocks. Home prices stay flat. Rates come lower. I'm sold. I'm sold. Yeah. Skylar well, Olson. I'm naturally optimistic, but, you know, dismal scientists. So wait for the data to show. <laughs> Skylar Olson, chief economist of Zillow. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, the CEO of health company Roe on obesity drug coverage and how it may impact companies' ability to retain talent. Plus, watching the retailers, the XRT retail ETF on pace for its seventh straight week of gains to close out the year, up more than 25% in the past two months. Much more money movers back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. All right, welcome back to Money Movers. SoftBank shares getting a nice boost this morning after getting more than $7.5 billion worth of shares of T-Mobile at no additional cost. Masasun exercising a clause as part of T-Mobile's merger agreement with Sprint that forces T-Mobile to issue about 50 million shares of common stock over to SoftBank. As a result, SoftBank's stake in T-Mobile doubles. Now just over 7.6% shares on track for their biggest gain in over a month. 
Let's turn now to health care. Weight loss drugs took the sector by storm and the country in 2023. And with plenty more currently under development, our next guest runs one of the biggest names in telehealth and thinks virtual medicine will see a surge in patients as demand increases for these treatments. Joining us now is Roe CEO, Zach Raitano. Zach, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I think of Roe, your company, as, as fast-growing telemedicine company. How does that... How does that fit with the obesity drug craze, and how has it transformed your business? I mean, we started uh, we started treating patients for weight management in, in 2020, um, and we've helped over 200,000 patients start their start their weight loss journey. And it was through that that we actually saw patients asking for us to help them with GLP-1. So it's something we've been very very early to. Obviously, we've seen a significant uh, increase in traffic to Roe.co since the launch of the body program, but. Uh, this is a space that we've been in for quite some time and have helped patients with across the country. And can you actually administer prescriptions and, and dispense these drugs? Yeah, so how, how it works, maybe I'll give a little bit of background yes. about how the, the body program works. So patients will go to Roe.co. Uh, they will go through a rigorous and comprehensive onboarding that will assess their metabolic health, insurance coverage, their preferences, clinical eligibility. Um, and through that, we will determine the best next steps and maximize their uh, insurance coverage, um, understanding, again, their metabolic health, will run lab tests, um, and then if appropriate, they'll move forward with treatment at the lowest possible cost. Um, after that, that's really where the program starts. So patients can message their providers 24-7. They have one-to-one -one coaching with a nurse, an educational curriculum. Uh, they have monthly check-ins as well. Uh, and they can report side effects in real time and have those reviewed by a healthcare provider. So it's really a comprehensive and ongoing chronic care management uh, program for patients. So, Zach, this is Frank Holland here with Sarah uh, at Post 9. So I'm looking on your website. On your website, there's an asterisk next to it, but you say that people can lose 15 to 20 percent of their weight in a year using one of these GLP-1 drugs. Just to put that in perspective, you have a tool on the site. So if you weigh 200 pounds, you're saying within a year you can get down to basically 160. Um, what kind of, uh, I guess, results have you seen so far with people that have, have used your services? What kind of feedback are you hearing from your customers? We're seeing, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, the asterisk is there, and I think that's a, that's a good question. The asterisk is there simply, simply because that is what was seen in the clinical trials, and it depends on the drug that a patient is on, and there's a, the, there's a range of drugs, right? So Wagovi patients see about 15% weight loss over the course of a year. Uh, for Zepbound or Munjaro, same active ingredient, patients might see 22, 20 to 22% weight loss after a year. And after 88 weeks, there's some studies that actually show patients losing 25% of their, their body weight. Um, the row body program has been around just over, just, a, uh, just around a year. And we've seen patient results match those of the, of the clinical trials. So we're yeah, very, I, very encouraged by the results we've seen on the program so far. But Zach, I do want to ask you, those are stats, but that's a pretty extreme weight loss. If you're 200 pounds to get down to 160, and also I saw earlier this year, you launched uh, what you call basically a body program that involves coaching and, and right. some other things. So basically, does someone have to buy a whole suite of your products to get these kind of results? And if they, if they take the medicine, what happens if they don't get the results that you're promising? I know it's, it's clinical trials. I know it's not your study, but it is on your website. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, the uh, patients that come on, we are seeing results that match those of, of the clinical trial. In order for someone to get access to uh, treatment and medication, they go to Roe.co and they see if they're eligible for the body program, which is high quality clinical care centered around GLP-1s. That includes 
one-to-one coaching and includes 24-7 access with their provider, monthly check-ins to be able to titrate their dose, manage any side effects, um, see what's right for them. In addition to that, in the background, we're constantly optimizing their insurance coverage. If a new savings card comes available, if they change jobs, if, in, if their employer changes the insurance that they have, which we will see on one one, a lot of updates and insurance plans. So in the background, we're constantly working to make sure that the patient has the right treatment at the lowest possible co- uh, cost for them on an ongoing basis. And in all fairness, without insurance, it's, according to uh, the data that you gave us, it's $1,000 a month for these GLP-1 drugs? So the majority of patients that go to Rodaco and, and are eligible for treatment, the majority of them uh, do see do pay less than $1,000. So they see some form of cost assistance, either from their insurance program or from uh, savings card usage. We do see, and, and if you break down coverage throughout the country, it does vary, right? So uh, about 40 to 50 million people are covered uh, from their commercial insurer. And of those 40 to 50 million, 80% are paying $25 or less. So when people are covered by their insurer, so I think that we'll see this be a very popular topic with employers in 2024 and beyond, but when people are covered, the vast majority, 80%, are paying $25 or less. Um, And all employees of the federal government uh, have coverage for anti-obesity medication, 10 out of 50 states related uh, for for Medicaid, and is actually um, Medicare is is legally prevented from covering uh, GLP-1s or, or weight loss medication. They cover GLP-1s for diabetes, actually. And so there are bipartisan bills on, on the floor that can hopefully reverse that. So I think over the next two to three years, you will see more and more. You'll see coverage increase. You'll see competition drive prices down, right? Eli Lilly came mm-hmm. in with a more effective drug at a lower price. So that is really, I think, the question that investors are trying to wrap their arms around, which is how widespread are these drugs going to be and what sort of changes are they going to have in our society? Everything from packaged food, we were talking about alcohol sales, medical device sales, if our health outcomes are better. When you look at the potential and and the size and the scope of how many people are going to be on this drug, say, in the next five years globally, and it does depend how much insurance is going to cover, what do you see? So the really interesting thing with GLP-1s is they satisfy uh, five criteria we've never seen before in in medicine, right? So the uh, obesity is the most common chronic disease in the U.S. So the majority of the U.S. population is eligible for the drug. That has never happened before. It's highly effective. It's scalable. Patients want it. Providers and major stakeholders in the healthcare system want patients to have it. So those five things have never happened before. And so we think that right now you see probably about 5 million patients on GLP-1s. Again, the majority are being treated for diabetes. We, we see, and I think uh, Goldman Sachs put out an a analyst report about a week ago, seeing potentially just in the U.S. 10, more than 10xing that number. So about 60 to 70 million people in the U.S., they see potentially five, seven years Mm -hmm. from now on this drug, and they estimated it could be a $400 billion market in the U.S. And I think that that translates. Usually the U.S. is about, for these major blockbuster drugs, about 50% of the global market. So you just 2x that for for the global market. And really quickly, what about employers? You say say they should cover it. To what extent are we seeing that? And what do you think is going to happen there? So we do see the minority of employers cover it. We are expecting, uh, I think, 2 to 3x the number of employers to cover it. Very few, there were recent studies, 99% plus will keep. So very few will will decrease their coverage. You're going to see a 2 to 3x increase in coverage 
I think you're going to see with more and more drugs in the pipeline, with generics coming online, with orals versus injectables also being added, you're going to see prices come down. It might take a little bit longer than people expect. But the most important thing that I think you'll see here is that, and we've run studies on this with the Obesity Action Coalition, uh, the OAC, that 40 to 50 percent of employees will either stay at a job they hate if it covers GLP-1s or quit a job and take another one if it covers GLP-1s. So it is, I think people are underestimating the importance and the role that these treatments Mm. play in patients' lives. Why don't you go public? I think you last raised a $7 billion valuation in 2022. This this market has been hungry for anything obesity drug related. Yeah, we're 100% focused on our patients right now. We think we are at the beginning of the most important shift in medicine in the last 30 to 50 years. You know, we've, we've helped millions of patients across the country, um, but there are tens or 100 million plus patients in the U.S. that need help here. And so we're, we're 100% focused on making sure that if a patient comes to Roe.co, we can deliver them high quality ongoing obesity care. All right. That, that's a to be continued question, I guess. Roe, thank you. Zach, thank you. Zach Raytano, CEO of Roe. All right, so to come here on Money Movers, Moffitt Mathison lays out its internet playbook this hour with a closer look at names like Amazon, Uber, and Shopify. Plus, don't forget Money Movers is a podcast. You can follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Stay with us. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you get serious? Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Money Movers. I'm Silvana Hanau, and here's your CNBC News update. Gaza's telecommunications company, Paltel, said services are being gradually restored in central and southern Gaza following a blackout that began yesterday. The enclave has lost phone and internet connectivity more than half a dozen times since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, according to a company that tracks global internet access. Ukraine will reportedly have to delay pensions and salaries for public employees if it does not receive Western financial aid. The country's deputy prime minister told the Financial Times Kyiv is pouring all of its revenue into defense since Russia's invasion. Congress went into its holiday recess without striking a deal on a package that includes aid for Ukraine and Israel as Republicans push for immigration policy changes. And the Detroit Pistons just made NBA history, but not in a good way. The Pistons are the league's first team to lose 27 straight games in a season after losing to the Brooklyn Nets last night. The team's next game is against the NBA-leading Boston Celtics on the road Thursday. And Frank, I know you're a fan of basketball, so... Yeah, I'm a, fan of, I'm, I'm a fan of good basketball, Savannah. Sixers doing great this year, but I'm a Pistons fan. I used to live there. Savannah Hanau, thank you very much. You All right, coming up next here on Money Movers, Bleakley's Peter Bookbar on the trade-offs of falling inflation. Can a stronger consumer help to offset slowing revenue growth for companies? We're back in two minutes.
breaking news crossing on Apple and that watch patent drama. Steve Kovac has it for us. Steve. Yes, Sarah. It looks like Apple has uh, gotten a stay for this uh, ban on the Apple watches until from between January 5 and January 10th. Um, it's this is from an appeals uh, court that Apple filed yesterday to the appeals court asking for a stay on this while Customs and Border Control oversees this. And now this order here from federal court saying the International Trade Commission, which originally put the ban in place and ruled that Apple is violating those patents uh, they have until the 10th of January of next year uh, to uh, file its appeal to this. Uh, but in the meantime, right now, Apple has won a minor legal battle in this long drawn out case. Um, I've reached out to Apple to see what this means, if they're going to sell Apple watches, you know, for the next couple of weeks or what. But for right now, this is a uh, little bit of a legal win for Apple, Sarah. I'll take it from here, Steve. Yeah, looking at Apple stock right now. It's still down about a half a percent. We'll continue to watch it. Let us let, let us know if there's any other developments related to this. Our Steve Kovac with the latest on Apple and the Apple Watch. All right, our next guest expects the Fed to cut next year, but says that long-term rates, they could actually rise as investors would see the Fed pulling back from the fight on inflation. He thinks we could see a weaker dollar and is not looking at treasuries with a longer duration than three years. Joining us now, Bleakley Financial Group Chief Investment Officer Peter Bookbar. Peter, happy holidays. Good to see you. Thanks, Frank. You too. All right. So we already see on the weaker dollar, the dollar actually also down a half a percent, down 5% in Q4. But explain the Treasury part. I'm looking at the two-year yield and the 20-year yield. They're pretty close. Why wouldn't you want to lock in that longer yield? I, I still think there's duration risk. And we it was only a few months ago that we were all worried about excessive Treasury supply to plug the hole of the rising budget deficit. And I don't think that that goes away. Uh, I think we're in a situation where 2024 is still going to be defined by the Fed doing QT, foreigners buying less treasuries, banks reducing their size of treasuries on their balance sheet, and the U.S. Treasury selling at least $2 trillion uh, worth of bonds. So even though we could see, and we will see likely, uh, a cut in short-term interest rates, I uh, would not discount the possibility of a resumption of the rise in long-term interest rates where we even retest that 5% 10-year yield again. All right. You're also looking at commodity prices, specifically oil. You're worried that a weaker dollar might lead to a bit of a rally in oil. But we really just haven't seen that, even with the Biden administration buying barrels to fill the strategic petroleum reserve. Where is this concern about oil coming coming from? Because so far, even with the OPEC cuts and a lot of other actions, we haven't seen that price uh, rise or even really see a floor. It is definitely concerns on the demand side, which I understand. Uh, Europe's in a recession. China's obviously slowed. Uh, U.S. growth is is obviously in question, uh, but I still think that the supply side is going to be relatively disciplined. You know, the interesting thing with with the extra supply in 2023 was a surprise to the upside with U.S. production. But rig counts continue to fall, so I just don't see that the U.S. production levels can be sustained. And other commodities, copper's at a multi-month high, iron ore's at an 18-month high, that if the dollar index does break below 100, uh, I think you can light a fire under commodities, and we remain bullish along those. Peter, the thing with the with the Treasury call is that that now there's demand. I mean, we saw it; we've been seeing it at auctions. We saw it yesterday. We look, we have some more auctions today. But but the whole story has changed since the Fed has pivoted and is now worried about the risk of preserving the soft landing, at, at the and then wants to be cutting rates. No doubt that helped the rally. Also, uh, when the 10-year spiked beginning in late July, 
It was on the it was on the Bank of Japan widening yield curve control, which there was a thought that that would lead yeah. to uh, an end to negative interest rates, which of course has not happened. Uh, so you're right. We, we've had this massive rally, not just along the curve, but around the world in global bonds after the sell-off. But the 10-year yield, even after this rally, like I said, is just back to where we were in July. But I still think that these big picture concerns with respect to supply is not going away. And it gets to where with the Fed, the, the Fed is saying they're going to cut three times. The market's saying they're going to cut six. If they're going to cut six, it's because the economy is weaker than expected, which means the budget deficit is going to be higher than expected, which means Treasury supply is going to be higher than expected. So I see a lot of big-time trade-offs in 2024 and, and not the easy street that the markets are pricing in right now. But doesn't it also mean there's going to be demand for Treasuries if the economy weakens more than expected? Or you just think that it's more powerful force, the, the supply-demand issues? Well, that, that's going to be the interesting trade-off. Uh, do, do we buy long-term treasuries because growth and inflation is moderating? But on the other hand, that supply tsunami, how does that sort of interact with that? And it is a very interesting uh, question to where that clearing price is going to be. Uh, I still think that after a 40-year bond bull market, this bond bear market doesn't end in just two to three years, and that we have more pain to come in the longer end, while shorter-term treasuries, I think, are much more safer to be owning. All right, Peter Bookbar, Bleakley Financial Group. You also say right now is a good time to invest in small caps. Didn't have time to get to it, but great to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Same here. When we come back, Apple's iPhone design chief departing to join Johnny Ive and Sam Altman on a project at OpenAI. New details next. All right, welcome back to Money Movers. A top Apple executive now joining Johnny Ive and Sam Altman's secret AI hardware project. Sound a little spooky. Steve Kobach is back for today's tech check. And Steve, just joking about the spooky part, but is this brain drain? Is it a little scary for Apple? Yeah, not spooky. Let's call it secretive and mysterious. How about that? Because we getting all these reports, Frank, that OpenAI is working on some kind of nebulous hardware project. Now, previous reports already said Johnny Ive, that's, of course, the former chief Apple designer, has been involved from his company called Love Form, From, sorry, Love From. And that's the company he started after he left Apple back in 2019. Now, Bloomberg reporting yesterday, Tang Tan is the departing Apple designer for iPhone and Apple Watches is now joining that same project. Of course, we have no idea what they're working on. It's not really going to be a phone or anything like that. We'll see what they come up with. But thematically, yes, it is interesting. You have the hottest company in Silicon Valley tapping Apple's legendary design team. And lots of changes and departures have been going on at Apple's design group since I've left back in 2019. Loveform was contracted by Apple, in fact, for some design work, but that's over now and they're free to work on Apple competitors. The design team now is run by COO Jeff Williams, and he has a reputation. He's more like an operator a la Tim Cook, uh, more than some kind of product visionary. And that says a lot about the state of Apple today. It's a mature market for phones and watches and computers. I've took part in the Vision Pro design, but there's not much brand new on the horizon that I'll need that famous Apple design mojo to really push things forward. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, these people jump to some kind of new project, guys. Speaking of news of the day on AI, New York Times suing Microsoft and OpenAI 
over copyrighted, use of copyrighted work. I mean, obviously, this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem unless there's some sort of regulation to determine to determine who who owns or who gets paid for what right. gets into these AI models. What do you think happens here? Yeah, there's some. I was I've been looking through this case. There's just so much uh, evidence that uh, the New York Times put in their lawsuit. Sarah, they even have side by side comparisons of question. You know, and New York Times article right next to the Chat GPT response in journalism. It would we would call it plagiarism, and it's pretty damning actually to look at this and see how OpenAI has kind of scraped data from the New York Times and then kind of spitting it out almost word for word in the same way. We have not heard from Microsoft yet. It's been a few hours since this lawsuit came out, um, but we're hoping to hear their response pretty soon here. But this also reminds me, Sarah, of like the YouTube days back in 2007 and 8, where you had people uploading, you know, full television episodes of Family Guy or whatever. And Google and YouTube really had to work through that, make sure they're, um, you know, appropriately paying the copyright owners and things like that. We're kind of seeing the same thing happen here. I would also note, since we were talking about Apple, that there's that New York Times report last week that Apple is going the opposite direction. Instead of asking for forgiveness, they're asking for permission. And whatever AI thing Apple may be working on, they're talking to news groups about paying them for their content. I will also note OpenAI has made some deals like that, too, including with the German publisher Axel Springer and the Associated Press guys. But this one feels like a bellwether case. Oh, I mean, I know, I know authors and, and movie stars, Sarah Silverman has sued, for instance, as well. This um, is it's just the be a first. Big issue. Yeah, this copyright infringement yeah. issue. Thank you, Steve. By Thanks, the way, guys. Massimo, after Steve just came on and said that the U.S. appeals court paused the Apple Watch import ban, Massimo, the company who right. had accused Apple, is trading sharply lower after that news. Interesting. Yeah. After the break, Moffat Nathanson lays out its top 2024 e-commerce and internet picks. We'll have that for you when Money Movers comes right back. All right, welcome back to Money Movers. Moffat Nathanson calling Amazon, Shopify, and Uber its top picks for the new year. They're releasing a new note with the 2024 outlook for internet and e-commerce names. Joining us now is the analyst behind that note, Moffat Nathanson's Michael Morton. Michael, happy holidays. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so Michael, hard not to, to notice here that your picks are very closely tied to consumer spending. Making these your top picks, is that also just a proxy for your confidence that the consumer will continue to spend in the new year? Yes, more specifically, it's a reflection of where we think the consumer is going to spend. Uh, I would say Shopify is an exception to the rules. There's always exceptions to rules like this. But the consumer in 2023 will likely look similarly in 2024. And that will be a, pre- a preference towards experiences, uh, which are re- measured as services, and non-discretionary goods. If you look at our covered companies that sell things you, you don't need, they've really struggled to grow uh, post-COVID as there was a huge pull forward. Amazon has a great exposure to non-discretionary. They get it to you faster than anyone. And we believe there's a lot of upside to profitability in their retail business as you see leverage through their logistics. And Uber, as we all know, if you're trying to go out to dinner uh, with family and friends over the holiday, travel to the airport, it's a great way to play the consumer's interest in experiences over things they don't need. So is that thesis, is that the reason why you actually lowered your price targets on DoorDash and Etsy? Yes, um, DoorDash and Etsy, uh, 
both have slightly different issues. DoorDash uh, is, is a stock that we love when we initiated on it in January. It's the, the profitability thesis has really played out. We are concerned about food delivery and its exposure to the same consumers that own student loans. If you look at the overlap of the app usage age to the overlap of where much of the student loans that restarted in October sit, it's pretty much a one-for-one one ratio. And uh, again, we think the delivery business is a great business that's been misunderstood for a long time, but the consumer is going to see this bill show up uh, at the end of the month with student loans kicked in in October, and we think that food delivery could be one budgetary area they might cut their spending. Really quickly, since you mentioned Amazon as a buy, what do you think of today's news that they're going to start showing ads on Amazon Prime Video unless you want to pay an extra $3 a month to get an ad-free version? How, how big of a deal is this for investors and for the company's financials? Yeah, so there's a lot of things to interpret through this news. First, it shows a cultural shift that has occurred in Amazon over the last 12 months. Again, as part of our thesis that there's a long run of profitability beats coming in the future, but that it's no longer just a free-for-all subsidizing everything under the sun. Uh, the, the second point is we love the strategy that they've taken. Uh, you've seen other companies that are starting to layer ads in where you basically you need to opt in and say, hey, I want to see ads. Amazon, in very clever fashion in, op, uh, in the way they like to operate, you need to opt out. So by default, you're going to start seeing these advertisements and it will help subsidize the billions and billions of dollars that they spend on content every year. So it's just another check of the box uh, reflecting this business's uh, forward-looking emphasis on profitability growth. Yeah, pretty big shift for Amazon. Um, you know, I don't mind paying for Prime, but there's something about having to pay that extra three bucks to not have ads. Uh, Michael Morton from Moffat Nathanson, thank you for your picks. Uh, appreciate you. Have a great day. Just deal with the ads. I'm watching the boys. I'm watching Reacher. I don't want to see ads. I, I just, know. I just you already paid 15 a month for the all-in. By the way, Frank, you know, it looks like we're higher again. We've swung back and forth between gains and losses for the S&P 500. It's important because we're watching these levels. 47.76. 47.96 would right. be the all-time closing high. Will yeah. we get there today? Who knows? You know, who knows? Also, it's impressive the Nasdaq rebound. I don't think Apple's quite rebounded after yeah. the Apple Watch news. It was down a half a percent, but still seeing the Nasdaq just kind of inch into positive territory. A lot, number of 52-week highs today. A lot in the travel sector as well, some of the hotels, like a Marriott. Um, that's going to do it for us today on Money Movers. Thank you, Frank Collin. Now back over to Scott and the Halftime Report. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.